Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you moms who are here. Happy Mother's Day to Brianna, who's working with the children tirelessly. Um, she needs a day off. We've got to work something out for that. Um, and thank you again for being here. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms who are watching online. Uh, we are appreciative of you and for the work you do. And, and once again, this always comes with a, an awareness for those of us who have lost our moms, how it is a difficult time for those mothers who have lost children. It's a difficult time for the women who are unable to have children but have desired to have children. It's a difficult time. And so as we are celebrating, we are doing it with an awareness that it is also a heavy day for many people, and we don't want to be ignorant to that. And it's a difficult thing, but it's something that we do all the time is carry these things together. We can celebrate and be aware at the same time, and that's something that we want to do. Um, even today, I, I'm, I've been looking forward to talking about what I'm going to be talking about today that's not specifically towards mothers, but is directly about women and the church, how the church has dealt with women. Um, and I hope it'll be something liberating and insightful. I know we've talked about these things a lot of times in the past years, um, and there's been an evolution on my part and I think on our part at Genesis regarding this. Uh, but hopefully this will be something that will be helpful for us. But before we get started... Let's pause, let's pray, let's allow there to be a time where we lean into all that God has for us and who God is in our time of worship. Father, we are grateful for an opportunity to once again pause and to listen. And we pray that that would take place through the things that are sung, through the things that I say, and the things that we talk about even afterwards. These are all opportunities for you to be at work within us collectively. And we thank you for the time and space we have for that to take place. And we ask that it would, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Again, good morning and happy Mother's Day. I know Beth had asked how things went Tuesday with our Unfiltered, and we'd shared with here. It was great. We had a great time, great conversation. We do want to do this again. We'll let you guys know when we are doing something like that. Again, it's not specifically a Genesis thing, but I think uh, a lot of people 
at Genesis, feel comfortable in that situation and attend. Uh, we're attending, and a few of you guys were there and appreciate that. So we'll let you know. But anyway, it was great. We had a great time, great conversation, and look forward to doing it again. Um, today, I want to, again, as I mentioned, talk about women and how they have been portrayed uh, in the church. Um, before I even start, though, I want to acknowledge that for years I have been guilty of some of the things that I am addressing today. And it wasn't because I had a malicious intent against women. It was the filter, the, the lens that I was seeing things in. It's how I was taught. It's what I believed was right according to the things that I was taught. And so I don't want to assume that there is a malicious intent on the others who are presenting things in this way. Perhaps they are coming from the same place that I did, and it's the same reasons. Um, But I wanted to make us aware of how the Bible has been used to maintain and and further a patriarchal system. Uh, Many people who believe that the Bible is inerrant don't recognize that how it is translated is done with a certain prejudice. And what I mean by that, it depends on the translator's view and understanding of things. It's going to influence what they assume is being said. And it's that way with everything. It's that way with science to dog training. If you have a preconceived idea, it's going to taint what you present based on what you think or even already think, but that there is this univocal understanding that is in Scripture is just not true. We see that in the various translations themselves. We see that with the numerous denominations that we have that read something and understand it differently, even though they are reading perhaps the same translation of the scripture. And so as we look at some of these passages, I want to be aware of how the translators are presenting things, are actually presenting a view that has been held that perhaps needs to be exposed. And I want to start in Romans chapter 16. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Version, but we're going to cite other versions as well. In Romans 16 verse 1, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church of Centria. I think that's how you say it. The word servant is the word diakonos. And it's sometimes translated as servant, but it also can be translated as deacon. And it's translated as deacon in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. That's the same word that is translated servant in Romans 16.1. So the word can mean servant, or it can mean leader, deacon, or benefactor. Why do most translators choose to translate it a certain way here in 
Romans 16, 1 as servant, and then just add a footnote or deacon. Instead of translating it as deacon, as in other passages that don't even have a footnote servant, it just says a deacon. It most likely is because it's referring to a woman and the translators believe that a woman's role is to be limited in church leadership. And so there is an assumption that it means servant or in some translators might say helper instead of a deacon because we see the role as deacon as being that is one for a man. It's interesting to see the various translators in the notes in the various translations throughout some of these scriptures and over this word because it's very much segregated in this way. Masculine, they will lean towards leadership and deacon. Feminine, they will lead towards helper or servant. The NIV does translate it as a deacon, but then they are quick to put a footnote that it means could mean servant. I shouldn't say quick to put it. It's just there. I don't know if they put it in quickly or slowly, but there's a footnote there that says, by the way, this can also mean servant. Or Romans, or not Romans, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and 22 are, are familiar verses to many. Verse 21, it says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And there is no break that says husband and wives there. That's put in by the people who are putting the scripture together. It goes on in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now the word in verse 21 for submit is the word hupotasso. And I think a lot of us have heard that word in its translation through a Bible study or something. The word submit that is used in verse 22, well, there is no word in verse 22 that says submit. That word is imposed from verse 21. Why is it put there? And why have I been taught, or maybe you have taught, that the word hupotasso for the wives to submit means a certain thing, where it's the same word that means submit to one another, and it actually does not exist in the original in verse 22. It's imposed. And it's imposed, it's inferred to because of verse 21. But literally, it would be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord, etc. But it's brought out, wives submit to your husband, and then that becomes a focal point. Wives are to submit. Well, it's not wives are to submit. It's we're to submit to one another. And then the word is included in verse 22, even though it is not there. Again, I find that interesting. Romans chapter 16 again in verse 7, and I've talked about this one before. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. The footnote after the word Junia in the Holman translation it says, or Junius, which is a male definition. The problem is there is no reason to say that. 
And there is no place in any Greek writing where the word or the name Junia can be interpreted in the male counterpart as Junius. There's another footnote that says that are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle, but it more likely means that are outstanding among the apostles. So it's almost like we're hedging our bet here. First, if it's the word or the name Junia, it could be a man. And if it's outstanding among the apostles or to the apostles, it's actually could be among the apostles. In the English Standard Version, it says, greet Andronicus and Junia again, footnote, or Junius, which doesn't exist. Why is there a footnote there to mean a masculine? Because most likely the interpretation is well known among the apostles and not to the apostles. In the 1995 edition of the New American Standard translation, it says, greet Andronicus and Junius. They totally just changed the name and put it there and then put a footnote, or it could be the feminine. Totally changing what is there and putting what is thought to be there. And they say, my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. They later changed the name to be the feminine, Junia, with a footnote that it could be the masculine, even though there's no reason to assume that it is. And they maintain the translation, chief among the apostles. Here's the thing. Why would they change the name from feminine to masculine when it's nowhere done, that is done, anywhere in Greek literature? What gives them the right to change the name except that they don't like what it's saying? And so they either change the name to masculine and maintain that it's chief among the apostles or they keep the name feminine and change the translations among or to the apostles so that she's no longer considered an apostle. And here we read and interpret the Bible, how we see it and how we want others to understand it based on what we think it means, not so much on what it is actually saying. Again, the Bible is not univocal. It's diverse, not only by when and where it was written and to whom, but in literary styles. And so when we're reading something, what is the genre of literature? Is it poetry? Is it a historic narrative? Is it a story? And when we come to the New Testament, we have letters written to specific groups living in specific areas at a culture in a certain time addressing specific circumstances. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul is writing to a church that is in Corinth. And in verse 13, it says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, to us, that seems very strange, right? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom. 
nor do the churches of God. We most likely agree, at least most churches agree, that Paul is talking in a cultural context here about the church in Corinth dealing with the temple of Aphrodite and the the temple priestess that were there. And this is done so that the women would not be confused with the temple priestess and their roles often in prostitution, and so this is given to help them. But then he uses this idea of, doesn't nature itself tell us that women are to have their heads covered or their long hair is a covering and men are not to have their heads covered? It's like, why don't we observe these things today? One, because women don't want to have long hair and it's inconvenient. And so good luck trying to push that agenda anymore, right? That's not going to happen. But the second is we recognize it's cultural. That it's not something that is necessary for the gospel. So here he's advocating that women cover their heads so that they won't be linked to women of the temple Paul's concern was that the church be able to reach as many people as possible with the gospel of Christ without the distraction of cultural idiosyncrasies. Cover your heads. It's okay. For the gospel's sake. That way, it's not going to be considered a problem when you're trying to communicate that. Paul did the same thing with Timothy when he was trying to bring the gospel to the Jews and he had Timothy circumcised. But later in his letters, he says, circumcision avails nothing. If I was Timothy, I would have questions. (laughs) If it avails nothing, then why do I have to be circumcised? I've got so many questions. How did they know he was circumcised? Are you circumcised? Yeah. Prove it. What, I mean, what happens? How do, you, how do you deal with this? What was Paul's purpose for that? So that the gospel could be furthered. He was okay. He was willing to have Timothy circumcised. Easy for him to say. Why? Because it would further the gospel. And I think that oftentimes that's his desire, he often will say things like, so that no one will be open to blame, so that they will be well known for their good, new, good deeds, so as to give the opponent no occasion to slander, in order that God's name and the teaching not be slandered, in order that the word of God, the gospel, not be slandered. He is constantly through his writings concerned that the gospel not be slandered, not be put to shame, not give reason to offend the, the gospel might be offensive, but let's not allow cultural offenses to stop us from presenting the gospel. I want to look at one of the more controversial passages in Scripture concerning women in the, women in the church. And this is, again, another letter to now not a group of people, but to a person, to Timothy. It's a pastoral epistle. It's got even a narrower focus because it's to a person who is in a position at a church. And if we don't keep that in mind, we will take what is specific and make it general. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, First of all, 
then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. Once again, we see Paul is pleading that how we conduct ourselves be in a way that allows the gospel to be presented without unnecessary obstruction. And that word tranquil and quiet is going to be words he uses later on. He's telling Timothy that they are invited to live peacefully and quietly among the people and then will proceed to give instructions to how they can do that. And we see that in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, just like he mentioned in verse 2, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel. Now, this is referring to flaunting wealth. It's not about dressing sexually. The elaborate hairstyles, the gold, etc. What's he trying to do? He's trying to present themselves in a way that can't be slandered or ridiculed. Look at these people flaunting their wealth. And so he's telling the women to dress modestly. I think of all the youth Bible studies where the women were told to dress modestly. No spaghetti straps. There was one time where a a girl came to the youth group, the high school group, and she had a shirt with spaghetti straps, and they made her wear a T-shirt. They put the T-shirt on her, over her outfit. Can you imagine? Here she's going someplace for the first time. She's probably concerned about how she looks, how she dressed, like most people are. And then you go to this place thinking you look cute or nice or whatever, And they tell you, put on this like VBS shirt that says, you know, Jesus is king or something. And it's oversized and bulky. How humiliating. And this is the passage that is used to produce something like that. And it has nothing to do with that at all. It has to do with don't flaunt what you have to people that don't have so that you can easily present the gospel. It goes on in verse 10. But with good works as a prop are as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. A woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she, should, she is to be silent. That word silent, by the way, is the same word that is translated quiet previously. Think of the difference just those words mean, quiet and silent. Because I see a difference. I feel a difference. Verse 13, for Adam was created first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. We have to remember this is a letter written to a pastor for a specific purpose. We also have to take the verses we have just read in context to the whole book and what is being said. Paul, from the get-go, is addressing a problem that Timothy is dealing with that. And and we see that, and I'm not going to belabor this. Boy, I I, I was tempted, even in 
talking with some people. I could have done five parts just on dealing with all these subjects, and this would have been a whole topic just in itself. But I don't want to belabor it. I'm hoping to just make a point. But in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that they're not to teach different doctrines, worried about people who were teaching different doctrines. Verse four, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Verse seven, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. In verse one, chapter one, verse 19, some have rejected these and have suffered shipwreck of their faith. And, and so at the very start, we see that Paul is dealing with people who are teaching the wrong things, who are, are causing problems in the church and he's addressing these things. Later on in chapter four, verse one, we see the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through hypocrisy, liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude. Chapter four, verse seven, it says, but have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. In chapter five, Paul goes on and on about widows who are widows indeed, older widows, younger widows. Here's a widow, there's a widow, everywhere's a widow, widow. How do you deal with the widows here in chapter? It's like dominates that chapter. And then in chapter six, I wanna focus on this one. First Timothy chapter six, verse 20, it says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent empty speech and contradictions from the knowledge that falsely bears that name. By professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. The word that is used for knowledge there is the word gnosis. And it's believed that Paul is warning Timothy about the early stages of Gnosticism that had divine knowledge. Some of the specific things concerning Gnosticism was this idea of possessing a special revealed knowledge from angels, which is something that talks about here in Timothy as well. They also forbid people from marrying, which would affect widows and the concern how this teaching might be directed towards certain women, widows that are there at the church. Also Gnosticism, Eve was the origin of this divine knowledge. They shift the story in Genesis where Eve partakes of the fruit of knowledge and she becomes now the bearer and the mother of the divine knowledge and has precedence over Adam because she ate first. So an argument against this being specifically cultural is often said that Adam was created first and then Eve was deceived. But this is something similar that we saw in Corinthians but wasn't pushed. But here, even more so, it is something that confronts Gnosticism that says Eve was over Adam because she bore the divine knowledge because she ate of the fruit first. It can be interpreted that Paul is actually instructing women to learn, but to do it quietly, especially Gentile women who did not have 
the understanding of scripture that the Hebrew women would have being in synagogue. And it's most likely that Paul is addressing the teaching of Gnostics early on that are influencing this church and telling Timothy, hey, I don't let a woman teach because right now they're being targeted. And so they need to sit and learn so that they won't be deceived. And he uses the example of Genesis because Eve was deceived then Adam because it directly confronts the problem with the Gnostics. If this is a specific letter to a pastor dealing with specific problems, why would we then make it something that is generic for all women at all times everywhere? Does it fit? And not only that, but does it fit in the narrative? Is that the right interpretation based on all the other things we understand being said about women throughout the New Testament? How Mary sat at Jesus' feet as a disciple. How a Samaritan woman was the first convert and the only person that Jesus ever said he was the Christ to, that a woman was the first person that the resurrected Christ revealed himself to and proclaimed his resurrection to the others. And I want to read a few other things to you. And I'm just going to read this, but I hope that hearing them, it will shock us into seeing how we could interpret passage like what happens in 1 Timothy chapter 2, or in Ephesians chapter 5, or in 1 Corinthians 11, how we could interpret them the way we have. Women were gifted and spoke as prophets in the early church. Evidently, the gift of prophecy was widespread, and Paul refers to it several times in Romans 1, or Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians as being important. Luke records that the Holy Spirit was poured out on both men and women so that they can prophesy. And we know that there were female prophets who exercised that gift in mixed gatherings, including men. We see that in Acts chapter 21 and 1 Corinthians 11.5. Moreover, the prophetic voice expressed in Christian gatherings served a teaching function. The office of teacher and prophet are linked in Acts chapter 13. Prophets edified and encouraged their listeners, and those who listened will learn and be instructed by the prophets. Women had prophetic roles all over in the early church. Women were teachers in the early church. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were co-workers with the apostle Paul. Her name is usually mentioned first, when her and her husband are mentioned, which is unusual in that first century, and also suggests that she's the most prominent of the pair. In Acts 18, Luke records an encounter with them that they have with a powerful teacher named Apollos. They both took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The Greek word explained is in the third person plural and implies that they both did the explaining, not just the man. Women were deacons in the early church. We saw that with Phoebe mentioned in Acts 16 as the one who delivers 
Paul's letters to the house churches in Rome. Her status also suggests her role as the one who read and interpreted the letters to the congregation. Scott McKnight has a whole lot to say on that, some great stuff on that. Paul's designation of her as a deacon is significant in that he uses the same term he refers to himself and Apollos in 1 Corinthians and in many other contexts regarding leadership in the church, as we saw in Philippians 1. Women were apostles in the earlier church. Junia is mentioned in Romans 16 as one who is outstanding among the apostles. Women were co-workers with Paul in his ministry efforts. Priscilla, Iodia, Sintica are called Paul's co-workers in the ministry of the gospel. The same designation he uses elsewhere of other prominent male leaders. Women were house church leaders. This was the early form of pastor. Chloe was a house church leader in Corinth. Nympha was a house church leader in the area of Colossae. Lydia was the first convert in Asia and seems to be a public leader in Philippi. It was likely that the women who were heads of their households exercised leadership in such settings. Women are mentioned prominently in Paul's greetings. At least 18 women are mentioned in Pauline letters. 16 are identified by name. Paul also mentions some of these women along with a male relative, but most are mentioned independently of a man. Moreover, Paul uses his favorite ministry term, co-worker, deacon, or minister, and apostle of both male and female colleagues. Paul mentions 29 people in Acts 16, and of the 29, 10 are women. And what's interesting is that seven of the 10 are described in terms of their ministry. In comparison, only three of the men are described in terms of their ministry. If you were just to understand that and that role of women in the early church, it seems pretty overwhelming that their role was not limited because of their gender, that the only limitation was the conduct and character of their lives. The reason that this is so important to me is because of how I saw and used this in my life. Not only this, so many other things that I taught that brought limits to people and their usefulness to the kingdom of God. Why would we stifle the voice of half the population just because they are women? How many women have been gifted to teach and instruct, but now feel that they can't because of how they were raised and taught up in the church? Now, I know there are churches that do have pastors who are women, and Episcopal churches that do that, and there's other denominations that allow that, but still in the United States and in Western societies and actually all over the world, there are so many women's voices who are silenced because of a misunderstanding of the Scripture. And I think this is something that we have to acknowledge confront and redeem so that those who are growing up hearing the gospel do not hear this and say, forget this. I can be a professor and teach at a college, but I cannot speak at a church. 
I can be a doctor, I can be a lawyer, I can have all this voice and understanding and appreciation, but not in the church of Jesus Christ because someone pulls a few verses out and uses the interpretation in a way that keeps a patriarchal system in place. It's wrong. It's bad. And it has to stop. We've seen in the news how authority has been abused. How many pastors have used their authority against women? If you've heard or read any of Beth Moore's dealings as she has been prominent teach a prominent teacher and has been harassed because she's a woman. How she left the SBC, I believe that's what she left, because of that domineering theme. Even Saddleback now has been kicked out of the SBC because they now are ordaining women. Okay? You're, you're picking your side, and it's based on, I think, prejudice a prejudiced understanding and interpretation of scripture. And I grieve for the way I have used scripture in my life towards my kids, that I hurt when I hear and see things interpreted in ways that would discourage anyone from participating in this gospel message. And that's why this was important for me to talk about. And again, I could go through all the different passages. I just touched on this one in Timothy because there's a lot more here that we could uncover that I think makes it real clear that Paul is not telling women to be silent. He is talking to a pastor at a time dealing with the specific problems that he's addressing. And he's not telling women to be silent. He's telling them to learn quietly. And it's probably so that they can then have a voice to proclaim the gospel as all these other women did with him throughout the New Testament. And so I hope for those of us maybe who grew up with this background of hearing these passages and thinking, well, maybe the Bible is telling women to be quiet. Again, don't pull one passage out without a clear understanding. A lot of things are being said. And don't put an emphasis where there isn't meant to be an emphasis. No one worries about what they said at the first council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, where we're not to, you know, eat things that are strangled or offered to idols. No one asks their butcher if it was strangled or not, that I know of. Why? Because it was culture. It doesn't have the same relevance then as it does now. Don't take these passages and use them to bring about a silencing and a limiting of what God is really wanting to do. The only time I, well, no, it's not the only time, but one of the times I got real upset when I was counseling, and it's one of the reasons I don't think I should counsel, I don't think I'm good at it, was when a husband 
who's being a jerk said, well, the Bible says my wife has to submit to me. No, that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying at all. Don't twist this so that you can maintain your dominant authority that's abusive. Don't let people use the Bible to silence what God has given a voice. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful that there are so many churches that have opened their eyes and ears to understanding and allow, not allow, that recognize the anointing of your spirit in so many women. And I pray for those that don't. The churches that maybe are still with the SBC or a Reformed theology or Catholic or whatever that do not recognize the potential that is there in women because of a misunderstanding of a passage, because of mistranslations of passages, because of prejudice that influences how things are taught and even how things are read. Lord, may the church be the place where a voice is freed and the gospel is seen as good news to everyone. May we, like Paul, be willing to suffer shame for the gospel's sake. May we put aside our needs to be heard, whether it be politically, ideology, in ways that hinder the good news of Christ's kingdom to anyone who needs to hear it. Free us from our prejudice. Give us a spirit's understanding of your love and grace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I look forward to our discussion a little bit more with this. And until that time, may we celebrate every Junia who is chief among the apostles and not discredit anyone from what God is doing in their life just because they don't fit our prescription. God bless you guys. Have a tremendous week. Happy Mother's Day. Have a good day. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.